0: Good to see all of you here. Glad you're all here. Uh, As was mentioned earlier, welcome to all of our guests. We are glad you're here as well. And we do hope that you will stick around after services. Let us get to know you and you get to know us. So a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I went and visited our siblings of the Ripon Church of Christ on their Wednesday night uh, program that they were doing. Uh, They called it Sacred Selections. It's a they were walking through different hymns, songs that we sing, and talking about who wrote them and, and why those songs were written, what the lyrics mean, connecting the lyrics to Scripture. And I actually talked about the song we just sang, One Day. And so I, I want us to utilize that song as, as the springboard to our lesson this morning, Allow it to be the the skeleton, as it were, and we'll put flesh on it as we go along. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 4. Romans, chapter 4. And I want to read, beginning in verse 18, and we will read to the end of the chapter. Romans 4, beginning in verse 18. The context here, talking about Abraham and his faith. The Bible says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Let us pray. Lord God, we hear your word. And now as we seek to inform our faith, and as we seek to better understand and sing with understanding, We pray that you would help us to see clearly the gospel. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. Suppose you were to mark the most important days of a person's life. Which days would you select? Well, uh, yeah, that's usually where we jump to, right? When a person, the day they're saved we'd probably mark the day they were born, and then if they are a Christian, the day that they were uh, baptized, the day they were saved, uh, when they put their faith and their trust in Christ, obeyed the gospel. Uh, maybe if they were married, we'd mark that date. Perhaps the, the dates that marked when they worked at a, at a particular career. And, of course, no doubt we would include the day of their death. In the song, One Day, the song that we just sang, J. Wilbur Chapman. Yeah, there it is. Words. J. Wilbur Chapman. He's the fellow who wrote this song. And just briefly, a word about J. Wilbur Chapman. He was a Presbyterian evangelist in the late 19th, early 20th century. this guy, he... He had several pastorates, but then he devoted himself exclusively to campaigns and the circuit, evangelism, and things like that. He became head of the, one of the Presbyterian Missionary Societies. And just to give you a flavor of the, the kind of uh, Christian that he was, he believed that they needed to have some kind of affirmation of those who were part of the Missionary Society And if they denied the inerrancy of Scripture, we needed to drum them out. That was Chapman's view on things. He was opposed to the liberalism of his day. Not liberalism like we sometimes think about in Churches of Christ, like if you use this songbook, well, we use that songbook. Die, heretic, you liberal, right? Not that kind of liberalism. Real, serious liberalism. The kind of liberalism that denies inerrancy of Scripture. The kind of liberalism that denies the virgin birth and all those things, the resurrection. Chapman was opposed to those. And in fact, did you notice, he actually snuck in a jab at the liberals of his day. I'll point it out to you as we go back through the song. That was J. Wilbur Chapman. He picked five, focuses in on five key events of the eternal history of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the chorus actually presents the, those five events, very carefully crafted statements. And so each of these phrases corresponds to a particular verse in the song. So, for example, if you look at the chorus here, and it is on the cover of your bulletin, I guess we can jump ahead here and take a peek at it. Living he loved me. That corresponds to verse 1 which is all about the life of Christ. The next phrase, dying, he saved me. That corresponds to verse 2, which is all about the crucifixion. Buried, he carried my sins far away. That's verse 3, which discusses the burial of Christ. But then, rising, he justified freely forever. The resurrection, that's what verse 4 is about. The grave unable to conceal him any longer. And then, one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. That's all about the return of Christ. You have several key doctrines that make up this chorus. You go back through it. Living, he loved me. There's the doctrine of the love of God. Dying, he saved me. The doctrine of salvation. Buried, he carried my sins far away. The doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. Rising, he justified. Talk about the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrine of justification. And then, one day he's coming, oh glorious day. That's the doctrine of the return of Christ. The doctrine of the final judgment. Wow. Man, this guy Chapman, he seemed to be on the trolley, right? You ever think about this as you sing these songs? We place a premium, an emphasis upon a cappella singing. I think that's right. But then do we just kind of ho-hum, sing our way through these things, and, and not really... Put thought into and understand, to sing with understanding, to sing with the mind. Boy, when J. Wilbur Chapman wrote these lyrics, he put a lot of thought into them, and he saturated them with Scripture. Let me show you. Let's walk back through this, starting in verse 1. One day, when heaven was filled with His praises. He's talking about praises for the Son of God, for God the Son. And this reaches back into The book of Isaiah. I've talked about the book of Isaiah, chapter 6 in particular, uh, several times. And and you remember that, of course, is the vision that Isaiah receives of uh, when the king, King Uzziah, died. He saw King Adonai, King Yahweh, sitting on his throne. The train of his robe went around the temple. And you had seraphim flying around. And what were they crying out in verse 3 of Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy. As the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is filled with His glory. Well, who are they praising? They're praising Yahweh, praising Adonai. Well, what's interesting is when you go to John chapter 12, and John, he's here explaining a bit about the ministry of Christ, beginning in verse 37. He says in verse 38 that uh, what's happening is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, and he quotes from Isaiah 53. But then he goes on, and in verse 39, he says, Therefore they could not believe, for, again, Isaiah said, verse uh, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, where is he quoting from there? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. And notice the application John makes of this verse in verse 41. Isaiah said these things. Because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who? He's talking about Jesus. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate glory of God the Son. And so who is it the seraphim are worshiping? In the high halls of heaven, there's the highest praise given even to God the Son. Yeah, one day heaven was filled with his praises. Meanwhile... On earth, one day, when sin was as black as could be. I talked at the beginning of this year about the sinfulness of sin. You can go back into the YouTube archives and watch that sermon if you need a refresher about the sinfulness of sin. Sin is exceedingly sinful. Sin was as black as could be. Sin, you know what sin does? It's, it, 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 it's rebellion. It's rejection of God. Sin causes us to be dead in our trespasses and sins. We become darkened in our foolish hearts. Our thinking becomes futile. This has serious impact upon humans. We become hard-hearted. Go back and read Romans chapter 1, starting about verse 18, and go through the rest of the chapter, and you will see what sin does to us. What sin does to every single person. And it was at that moment... When the highest praise was being given to the Son of God, even in heaven. It was on that day when sin was utterly sinful. That's when Jesus came forth. This is, we could talk about Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, the kenosis hymn, as it's sometimes called, where even though he was found in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But He emptied Himself. He took on the form of a servant. Took on human form. In the likeness of people. And became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. Yeah, He emptied Himself. He he came forth. We can talk about John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And by the way, with God, that's the face-to-face, intimate relationship. John will say in verse 18 that, That He is the one who is in the bosom of the Father. Very intimate, close relationship between the Father and the Word, the Father and the Son. And then in verse 14, He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is God the Son emptying Himself, leaving the high halls of heaven, all the praise that's due Him, in order to come down into this sinful world and to live among us as a human 100% God, 100% human, And, and they meet in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice, here was the slam at the liberals of his day. Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, laying the smack down on him, right? He was born of a virgin. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, there's the virgin birth. And Wilbur says, amen, that's right. God did that. Dwelt among men. Took on flesh and dwelt among us, right? He dwelt among us. My example is He. That's 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and verse 21, where Jesus is our example. He's left us an example that we should follow in His footsteps. Yes, living, He loved me. Here is the life of Christ. J. Wilbur Chapman putting it to poetry, and it's Charles Marsh who sets it to music. He lived. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus was a myth. He never existed. He did. Jesus of Nazareth really did live some 2,000 years ago. He lived for about 33 years. Luke tells us his ministry began when he was about 30, Luke 3 and verse 23 and you factor in a ministry that's about three, three and a half years, depending upon who's counting, and you get about 33 years. That's how long Jesus lived. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life, the kind of life you and I could never live. He lived that perfect life. Why? For us. Because of His great love for us. Living, He loved me. Indeed, Christ loves all of us with an incredible love. Even an everlasting love. We sing another song, don't we? Why did my Savior come to earth? Because He loved me so. It's because He loves us so much that He left heaven, that He came to earth, that He put on flesh, that He lived among us for a time and again lived that perfect, sinless life we could never live. Every act of mercy, every word of grace, every sermon of warning, Every good deed. Everything He did. He did because He loves you and me. Living. He loved me. Some call that the active obedience of Christ. I think that's right. But then we have the transition here. Dying, He saved me. Here comes the doctrine of salvation. And this is what some have called the passive obedience. Where the Son voluntarily yields Himself To be crucified. And that's what verse 2 is about. One day, they led Him up Calvary's mountain. This is what all the Gospels culminate in. It all leads inexorably to Calvary and the cross. One day, they nailed Him to die on the tree. And all the Gospels record that He was crucified. That He did die on the cross. Suffering anguish despised and rejected. And and let me just say, we really don't know the levels of suffering that God the Son endured. We really don't. Because not only do you have the physical suffering of being nailed to the cross and having been scourged before that, by the way, not only the six hours that He hangs there on the cross that day, all the physical anguish, suffering absolutely, But then you have the spiritual aspect of this as well, where he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have the sinless Son of God becoming the sin bearer for us. We don't know that kind of suffering. can't even get close to it. Bearing our sins. There it is. My Redeemer is He. And the idea of redemption, He purchases us with His own blood, with His life given in violent death. He is purchasing us. And so, yes, dying, He saved me. Here's the historical event. Even as He lived, so Jesus died. He really did die on a cross. The most torturous means of death ever invented by the depraved mind of people. That's what the cross was. That's what crucifixion was. And after six hours of excruciating pain, he really did die. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, Mark says in Mark 15 and verse 37. He cried out and yielded up his spirit, says Matthew in Matthew 27, 15. Jesus himself says in the Revelation, Revelation 1 and verse 18, I died, he did, God the Son died on the cross. And not only sacred history, secular history will tell you the same thing. It agrees that 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And in that historical event, there is a spiritual significance. Because dying, he saved me. In his death on the cross, Jesus is saving people. You see, that's the central theme of the Bible. God saving people. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, He says, Jesus, He says, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Luke 19 and verse 10. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And He calls Himself the chief. And so if Christ can save the chief of sinners, He can save any sinner. Any sinner, every sinner who is willing to bow the knee to King Jesus, to repent of their sins, and to obey the gospel, every sinner will find Jesus Christ a willing Savior. What does He save us from? He saves us from sin, from death, from the grave, from hell. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath? of God. You see that's what what Christ saves us from as well. Is he saves us from even the wrath of God, God's wrath upon sin, by the way. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And so, we see that we are saved from sin, death, the grave, hell, even from God's wrath and it's because Jesus took our place. He died that death on our behalf. It was the death that was due us, and yet He took it upon Himself. And, so if that's the negative aspect of salvation, being saved from something, what have we been saved for? We've been saved for life. We've been saved for freedom. For freedom did Christ set us free, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Free to be all that God would have us to be in Christ. And so yes, dying... He saved me. And then buried. He carried my sins far away. Now we turn our attention to the burial. One day, they left him alone in the garden. The tomb in which Jesus was buried was located in a garden. One day, he rested from suffering free. That's what he does in the tomb, is he rests from his completed work. What is it he says on the cross as he dies? It is finished. It's the finished, completed work of Christ on the cross angels came down or his tomb to keep vigil this seems to be pointing to the the angels that were at the open tomb uh, that we read about in the gospels hope of the hopeless my savior is he and so we we see once again the repetition of the fact that jesus christ is the savior but this whole third verse is about the burial that jesus was buried we saw that he died, and what do you do with a dead person? You bury them. And the, the New Testament affirms that after they took him down from the cross, they laid him in a tomb. Acts 13, verse 29, Paul says it there. Paul also affirms that he was buried in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's breaking down the gospel. Uh, he was uh, crucified according to the Scriptures. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. He says there. And all of this was predicted by You guessed it, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. They made his grave with the wicked some 700 years before Jesus ever walked the planet. God was telling us about the history that would come to be in the death and the burial of Christ. Notice the significance that is attached to this. Buried he carried my sins far away. And so Chapman connecting here the forgiveness of sins with the burial of Christ. And you may already be ahead of me because we know what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. What are we to say then, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live it, live in it any longer? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Listen carefully, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, when we are baptized, that's where we find our union with Christ. We are united with Christ in His death, His burial, and also His resurrection. We'll talk about the resurrection more in verse 4 of Chapman's song. But I want you to see here, it is true that in the watery grave of baptism, that a, a dead sinner is washed clean by the blood of Christ of all sin. It's forgiven. Completely forgiven. Washed away. You see, without the death, there can be no basis for the acquittal that is coming. And indeed, we find the forgiveness of sins. Totally Uh, The psalmist talks about as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God has separated us from our sins. And again, it is by the blood of Christ that we are freed of all of our sins. Paul locates this event at the baptistry. But then he also talks about how we are raised to newness of life. And so, rising, now we get again, we're pointed back to the resurrection of Christ. And we... See here the mention of the doctrine of justification. Rising, he justified freely forever. I had to think about this. Because when you go through the New Testament, we, and you look particularly at the doctrine of justification, we talk about how we are justified by faith, we're justified by grace, we're justified by the blood of Christ. Even the, the death of Christ, we find how our justification is in the cross. But Chapman connects it to the resurrection. And I had to scratch my head for a moment and go, where did he get that? Well, he got it from the text that we started off with, that we read earlier, Romans chapter 4. Did you catch it when we read it? Romans chapter 4 in verse 25 says he was delivered up for our trespasses. Seems to be talking about the cross. But then Paul takes the next step to talk about the resurrection. He was raised for our justification. There's the connection between the resurrection of Christ and our justification. It is the historical event of the resurrection. One day the grave could conceal Him no longer. You see, it is true absolutely that Christ died, but He didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead by the power of God. And He lives forevermore. One day the stone rolled away from the door. And in fact, the way it's written in the Gospels, it's not only that the stone was rolled out of the way, it's as if it was it was lifted. It had a little a little track, usually the way things were were made back then, these tombs, had a a track that would have been carved out for the stone to be rolled back and forth. It's as if the stone had been lifted up and thrown down from that track. It's a it's a positive, affirmative declaration that the tomb is open. Uh, He arose. Over death he had conquered, now is ascended my Lord evermore. Emphasis again on the resurrection, the historical event that the tomb was found open, empty, the grave clothes lying there. Listen, theories have been put forward ever since the tomb was found open and empty. Theories have been put forward in order to try and explain away the empty tomb. You remember the first theory. It's in the pages of the New Testament. The the guards are told, what what are you supposed to say if people ask us what happened to? You say his disciples came and took the body. You know the problem with that theory, of course. You're talking about well-trained Roman soldiers against simple fishermen who don't know how to wield a sword. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested. Peter takes his sword looking to lop off someone's head and only gets their ear. That's the best they could do. No, these, and by the way, where do we find the disciples even after the resurrection? They're behind locked doors. These men are not fighters, they're afraid. Their hope has been crushed. No, there's no way these disciples would steal the body. The theory, and all the theories, do not account for all of the facts in the case. The only theory, which isn't even a theory, it's a historical fact. The only explanation that works and that accounts for all of the historical facts is that Jesus really was raised from the dead by the power of God. And it is a, a final demonstration and a full declaration that He is exactly who He came, came, claimed to be. That is the Son of God and that He lives and reigns forever. This is the most important fact of history. That the Son of God was raised. Although He died, and although He was buried, He was raised by the power of God. What's the significance? Rising, He justified. Freely, forever. It seems as though Chapman has in mind Romans 3 uh, in particular, which, ha- which brings out in, in bold relief the doctrine of justification by the blood of Christ. Justified by His grace, verse 24 talks about uh, how how God put forward Christ as our propitiation by His blood. Uh, And this was all to show God's righteousness. That God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. And so, we do have this doctrine of justification. But what is justification really all about? It is where God declares a sinner in right standing with him. It's the doctrine where God declares a sinner free from all the sin that they've committed. It is where God says to the ungodly, you're in right relationship with me. Wow. How is that possible? Only because of Jesus. It is not because of anything we have done. It is not because of good works that we could do, as though such a thing were even possible. Our righteous deeds are nothing more than filthy rags, and the fact of the matter is, we are all cars with bad alignment problems. We all head into the ditch. And it is only because of what God did in Christ that we can have right relationship, right standing with God in the divine court. We stand before our Father. Our older brother Christ is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the stand as our witness. And the whole Godhead conspires against the prosecuting attorney, which is the devil. We have been declared right before God. Only because of Jesus. And we need this because He's coming. One day, He's coming. And that day will be a glorious day. Chapman talks about it in the fifth and final verse that we sang. One day, the trumpet will sound for His coming. Right before I came up here, my oldest was sitting next to me. He leans over and says, Dad, does the Bible really talk about a trumpet on the last day? Good question, son. You better believe it does. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the, the, the final trumpet will blast. And so that that's that's what Chapman has in mind here, is the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glory will shine. Even Jesus during his life here on earth talked about this. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. There's a lot that can be said about the the glory of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus prays, right before He goes to the cross in John chapter 17, restore to me the glory I had before He came into the world. But He will come in his, the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. That's the day of final judgment. You see, the heavens will shine with His glory. It will be a glorious day because it will have with it the glory of God the Son. And then, don't miss this line. Wonderful day, my beloved one's bringing. We know that when Jesus comes back, he brings with him all the saints in their glory. Let me just ask, who are you looking forward to seeing? Because it will be a day of reunion. Who are you looking forward to seeing? And one of the things that I think about with my, my three sons, who do I want to introduce them to when we get there? There's a lot of good, godly saints who've gone on, the faithful departed. One that I think of, and I think many of you know, Brother Paul Meffin. passed away not too long ago. One of my stories I like to share about Brother Paul, I got to speak on a program with him down in Fresno at their uh, workshop one year. And they had a speaker's lounge. It was just like a conference room that they had converted for that particular event. And so as a speaker, I got, had access to it. So I was back there. I was working on my lesson, I think, getting ready for my keynote in the afternoon. In walks Brother Paul Methman. <laughs> and he comes in. They had some recliners. One of the deacons uh, uh, worked. Uh, he was part owner of the uh, fashion furniture. And so they had brought in some recliners. Great big lazy boys, right? Brother Paul comes in, he sits down, pulls the lever, feet back. He pulls out his cell phone, and he calls his wife, Pat, on the phone. And he's laying there, and uh, they have, you know, a little exchange there. And he goes, uh, oh, I'm, I'm just unlaxing a little bit. You know how Brother Paul talked and had that Alabama draw and all that. That's what I think about Brother Methvin. He's up there unlaxing a little bit, waiting for that day of reunion. I look forward to introducing my boys to Brother Methvin. who had an impact on me growing up. Who are you looking forward to seeing? Maybe introducing your children to. Wonderful day. My beloved ones bringing glorious Savior Glorious Savior, of course, that's Titus 2 in verse 13. Uh, How we are waiting for our great God and Savior. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. By the way, don't miss, Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. This Jesus is mine. Again, it's the doctrine of the return of Christ. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. He has promised That he will come again. Jesus, during his earthly ministry. We can go back to John chapter 5. And we can hear the words of Jesus in verses 25 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Son of God, Son of Man, both meeting in these few verses here. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to a resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here is Jesus making a promise, guaranteeing that even as all of the facts of history have shown, that He came, He lived, He died, He was buried, He was raised from the dead, and all of these point to the redemptive reality that we have in Christ, so also the voice of the Son of Man will usher in the resurrection. The hour is coming when all the dead will hear the voice, and they will rise from the dead, And they will all stand before the throne. We were created for eternity. Every last one of us created for eternity. God has created us for himself as well. But if we refuse him, then he gives us what we ultimately want in the end. That's what the judgment seat is all about. That's what the great great white throne judgment is all about. Do you want God? And if in this life, you've not only craved Him, wanted Him desperately, but you've also done good, as Jesus says, well, then that day will be a resurrection unto life. But if you've not wanted Him, you've only wanted what you wanted, and if you have done evil, the ultimate evil is to reject Him and to spurn His advances, you will come out of the tomb you will rise from the dead. And it will be to a judgment, a resurrection of judgment. Do you ever think about the things that we sing? Here, J. Wilbur Chapman has set the gospel facts to poetry. Charles Marsh has set it to music. These are more than words on the page. They are things that we believe. Things that we affirm and that we declare to one another as we worship our God through song. And we sing about how Jesus, He came, He lived, He died, He was buried, He was raised three days later. We sing about how Christ loves us, how Jesus saves us, He forgives us, He justifies us. And One day, He will come back to judge the living and the dead. He will come back, brothers and sisters, to welcome us home. One day he's coming, and that day will be a glorious day. I can't wait for it, and I hope you can't either. Let us commit this to prayer. Lord God, we give you honor, glory, and praise for what you have done in Christ Jesus, what you continue to do through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray that we would take the gospel with us, that it would be of comfort to us, and that we would seek to convict others by your word, so that they too can unite with us in anticipating and hastening the day of our Lord's return. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.